Hi, it's Dan here, and I wanted to let you know that this is a very special episode of the show. Some glimpses from my chats with four previous guests. You'll hear about 10 minutes of each guest's 60-plus minute conversation, which will give you a small idea of the many topics that we covered. Also, you can listen to the entire conversation at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Enjoy. Today I'm honored to have as my guest Mitchell Field, drummer, multi-instrumentalist, vocalist, songwriter, primary member of the late 70s band Hellfield, and I'm looking forward to hearing his perspective on the Canadian music scene, because Mitchell's been part of that for uh, many decades and has much experience touring, recording, producing, and much more that we'll get into as we begin our discussion. So thanks for joining me today, Mitchell. How are you? I'm great, Dan. Thanks very much for having me. I like to play with, with people that, that are able to play more than one instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, so as opposed to just a band, bass, drums, guitar, piano, singer, I'm kind of bored with that. I've seen that. And in fact, I've been in many of those types of setups. Uh, I'm more interested in uh, the bass player can play drums. I can play guitar. The keyboard player plays bass. Everybody sings. I, I'm much more interested in the future in, in looking at something like that especially visually because mm-hmm. it's yeah it's great to be up front and you know it's great to be uh, the lead singer or the drummer but it's also nice as a musician to have a little flexibility because my bass player who plays drums won't play drums the way I play drums mm-hmm. and my guitarist won't play like you play guitar or like I play guitar so we all bring something unique to the instrument it's a good point and I applaud you for doing that because you know again as a drummer you're trying to write songs you have to have some sort of affinity for keyboards or guitar and I originally wanted to play drums and I realized very quickly like if I'm going to sing and play songs and write songs I'm going to have to play guitar so I guitar became my dominant instrument but then I've said many times like for guitar players take drum take guitar lessons from your drummer because mm-hmm. if you want to be a rhythm guitar player you can play the rhythms along with the drummer and I love doing that yeah. and I know what it feels like to play the rhythms on the drums and then I can play them on the guitar right? exactly that's a great point and and it's yeah. funny because rhythm guitarists are a rare breed and they're very very underappreciated rhythm guitarists yes but, but as you say one of the one of the jobs of the rhythm guitarist is is as the name implies to supply some kind of rhythm not necessarily a solo you have another guitarist that's yeah. doing that but i mean if you look at the stones as far as rhythm guitarists or the beatles as yeah. far as rhythm guitarists or acdc as far as rhythm guitarists yeah. It's a job that's very underappreciated, but extremely necessary. Sometimes when you get out of the recording studio or the rehearsal studio and you get on the road, after about a month or so, you notice that it's not as tight as it was. It's people are not playing exactly, and it starts to drift a little bit. And that's the time when you have to go back and say, okay, let's do the song, just bass and drums. I want to hear exactly what the bass player and the drumming and the drummer are doing. I don't want to hear any guitar, any keyboards. I just want to focus listening to those two parts and see if they're locked in. Yeah. If the if the drummer is doing a, a busy, let's call it a busy pattern on the bass drum, and the bass player is playing a busy pattern, well, the guy that's trying to sing over the top of that, there's not going to be a lot of space it's really important that the bass player and the drummer, the bass player is usually playing the tonic or the root of the chord, not mm. always, but usually. And the drummer's playing the basic rhythm, the pulse of the tune. 
And so it's vital, and you learn this early in bands, just as you and I did, that the bass player and the drummer have to be tight. Yeah. If they're not tight, whatever you add on top of it, it's just not going to sound quite right. And you can't figure it out. The the lay person can't figure it out. There's just kind of this push-pull effect. And that's usually based on the fact that the drummer and the bass player are not synchronized. Got to be synchronized very exactly. And And it's a real skill. Yeah. And it's a good point because it seems like a subtle point for, for an outsider sort of looking at it, but it's not a subtle point. It's, it's a foundational point to making the songs what they need to be. So. Exactly. And, yeah. and as far as if you get into the studio, a bass player and a drummer change, we change the way we play. When we're playing live on tour, it tends to be a little busier or a little freer. As right. we're recording it in the studio, uh, we have a fairly concise idea of what's going on. It's got to be fairly structured. Uh, and also when you add in the fact that, that we're miking the instruments in a different way than we do uh, on tour, everything's very close and uh, independent. Yeah. And, and so, that, so that the point I'm making is there's a real difference between a live show and the recorded version of that song. So you've got to be of two different minds. Yeah, that's true. And it's a good point you make between the difference between the studio and the live. Like I've, I do prefer live. The studio is, can be an artificial environment. I mean, I've spent hundreds of hours in there and it, you, you just, you almost suck the life out of the songs by the time you, you're trying to focus so much to get them perfect. And then once you get them, so they sound close to perfect, they, all the life has been sucked out of them. And you've, it's just an artificial environment. So you got to kind of change your thinking. So that's a good point. Well, you have to, you have to change your thinking because as you say, you know, in the studio, as you and I know, we can do as many takes as you want. When we're playing live on stage, there's only one take. Absolutely. And yeah. and either you get it or you don't. <laughs> Whereas yeah. in the recording studio, you can sit there all day, as you say, hundreds of hours. I personally don't record that way. Yeah. Um, I'm not interested in perfection at all. Mm. I'm interested in the spirit and the intent and the sincerity of the song. And so especially when it comes to vocals, instead of doing, uh, you know, 30, 40 uh, takes, I, w- I could never do that. I don't. I do two takes, yeah. maximum three. Yeah. And if I don't have it by the third take, we'll just move on to the next song and I'll come back to it. Because your yeah. head's not there. After the fourth take, you're not in the same place mentally, physically either. Your voice might be getting a bit hoarse by the third or fourth take. And and what you're doing is with each take that you do, it's getting further and further away, I think, from what you want. So if I don't get it in the first couple of takes, that's okay. But I'm certainly, I I mean, I've heard stories of Celine Dion doing a hundred vocal takes for David Foster. Mm, It's To me, that's absurd because psychologically, psychologically as you say every time you go to the mic and and then the producer says no let's try this let's do that every single time you try and do another take you're not in the same headspace at all you're you're just not so i'm from the school with i let's go in let's bang off the vocal and if it doesn't work the first second third time that's okay i'll just come back to it a little later yeah, that's no, that's a good point because I think there was a there was a I don't know if it's a, a true story, but a story about Van Halen when they were first recording as well that they wanted that raw energy and they were trying exactly. to capture that raw energy and you don't get that on the fifteenth take no, of no. the song. 
right? You, 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 you got to get it in the first two or three takes and then, yeah. you know, you're having fun. So, so no, I agree with that. And and then again, you know, some, some producers like the Steely Dans and stuff, they go over, I mean, you listen to, um, you know, the making of Peg, for example, yeah. right. And, and yeah, Michael sure. McDonald's talking about, you know, how many three days on the back vocals and how yeah. many different syllables you can pronounce and, and it, yeah, it comes out good, but it's, it's, it's almost, I don't want to say overly good, but it's so perfected. It's that, almost sterile. Yeah. The life, it, it, I know what you're saying. You want that, you want to capture the spirit. It's not just, you're not just making a song like a scientist. Yeah. Right? I don't you, I, Maybe yeah. if you're, if you're from the conservatory and yeah. you're, and you're really into the, the, the theory and you're actually reading the notes off a page in the studio, which again, I've never done that. Yeah. Um, then I understand that. And Steely Dan, obviously great band. Yeah. fantastic songs oh yeah but, but of course they came from either berkeley or or uh, juilliard one or the other so their approach to music and songwriting is is completely different than mine because i just don't have the theoretical experience or knowledge necessary to process a song the way that they might and yeah. and, and i love steely dan i mean it's some amazing stuff yeah, absolutely but as you say you can almost hear the number of takes it took to get it that pristine. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. looking for that Van Halen really ambient, crunchy sound. Yeah. And I'll go with that as opposed to 300 takes. A band like Steely Dan, their, their whole approach is different. And I think it's because they're coming from more of a jazz background than a rock and roll background. Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest, keyboardist, vocalist, harp man, songwriter, and the consummate blues man, Al Foreman. Al Foreman has been an icon of the Vancouver music scene since the 70s, best known perhaps for his time with Scrub Kane, the Foreman Young Band, as well as many and other uh, subsequent projects that he's been involved in. He's basically done it all from touring and writing, recording, producing, and much more. I read here you played with Tommy Chong for uh, a little bit in your teenage yeah, years. Yeah, that, uh, that was my first, the first real band, I guess, that I, I, I it was short-lived because I was... Uh, uh, attending UBC at the time, but, uh, yeah, he had a group, uh, well, it was him and a guy named Tommy Melton. They had a group called little daddy and the bachelors. Yeah. And, uh, I got hooked up with them, uh, probably about 1962. And that oh. was really my first sort of foray into the, I, I was a part of the band for a while, but it was neat. It was a pretty good training school. And yeah, Tommy was the, uh, sort of consummate professional and, uh, you know, as, as it were. And, uh, we did a few gigs, well, more than a few. It was it was a nice experience. Yeah. Most people think of him as the comedian. Obviously, he became a superstar with uh, Cheech and Chong, but uh, yeah, he was a musician, and he and he, I guess, he always was, and he maintained that through his life. But right? he always plays music, right? Yeah, he. Uh, I don't know when he started playing guitar. They came out from Calgary, I think, was his uh, early roots, and uh, uh, yeah, he played guitar. And um, this guy Tommy Melton that was the lead guy. They just called him Little Daddy, and. So uh, yeah, Tommy was the guitarist. I uh, had no inkling of what he would, what was to follow. I don't think anybody <laughs> did, but uh, of course he went on to great fame with Cheech and Chong. Yeah. So you had lots of fun with your early bands. I mean, you get into music, and it was an exciting time too, because you were right at the perfect age for the onset of rock and roll. And you know, you know the, the... I, that's that's so true, Dan. I was so lucky, uh, you know, to be born in '43 uh, meant that I was a teenager, and you know, in, in the mid to late fifties when of course yeah. rock and roll was just coming on like a powerhouse and everybody had to, uh, 
adjust and adapt, uh, especially parents. But for young kids uh, like myself, teenagers, it was just the greatest uh, time to be uh, alive and able to absorb all this music. Plus, I had begun taking piano lessons uh, in 54. So I, uh, you know, by the time 57, 58 came around, I was, you know, sort of knew a little bit about uh, this music that I was enjoying. And I could, you know, could almost uh, play it with some, with yeah. some, uh, you know, dexterity anyway. I don't know about uh, much more than that, but I quite enjoyed it for sure. Oh, that's, that's super cool. And, yeah. and being right there, like you're kind of a, I talked to Robbie Lane about that too. You're kind of a living historian because you've kind of lived it too. You've been, you've watched it and been involved in it. So you become well, that, kind of a historian. Yeah, you know? That was the other thing about it that at the time you don't realize that, but reflecting on it, of course, years later, you're able to sort of talk about the onset of it. And it's neat because uh, a lot of people are uh, are quite interested in that. I found that with this uh, doing the podcast and stuff, there's a real interest out there in in hearing what people have to say about the you know, especially when the the whole music business too, like the Canadian music scene. I've heard that over and over again was really in it, its infancy, right? Well, there wasn't much of a scene, so you were creating that, the scene. That's right? so true, and and I wouldn't even say we would be creating a scene until really much later in the '60s and maybe even in the '70s when they got the Canadian content rules in place that helped right. a lot of acts. But in the early years, you know, it was sort of a few and far between. I know that uh, Les Vogt had a record out. Uh, he had a group called the Blamers. So anyway, at that time, you know, you there was very few Canadian acts that were sort of, uh, um, I guess the Beaumarks come to mind. I remember that song called Clap Your Hands. I think they're from Montreal. And okay. then, you know, in the early 60s, there really wasn't a whole lot uh, going on. And well, of course, they, I think the big uh, mainstay would be the Guess Who, but they, they came on, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s, I think. Yeah. But uh, yeah, you're right. The early scene was a developing time for uh, mostly the groups were from American. And uh, of course, the British invasion came along, but Canadians mm-hmm. were involved, but not in a huge way. Maybe just a few acts, you know, Ian and Sylvia. And I guess there was groups out of Toronto, but um, yeah, it was an interesting time in the development of uh, you know rock and roll in general, and then the other aspects of it that uh, yeah. came. Yeah, that's like, part of the history of it. And so yeah. you played in the late '60s in Night Train Review. Yeah, that was my first when I joined the union in '68. Um, I actually got a uh, an opportunity to join this group called uh, Night Train, and they were uh, they were like a almost like a house band at uh, this club called Oil Can Harry's in Vancouver. When we joined the night train, uh, within about, I'm going to say, five to six weeks, uh, we went from having this little kind of a steady engagement at Oil Can Harry's to uh, an opportunity to travel to San Francisco. We did an exchange. Pasita put all this together. He did an, ex- oh. we did an exchange with a band down in San Francisco. They came up to Oil Cans, and they played there for six weeks, and we went down to San Francisco we played a place called the, Dra- the Dragon of Gogo yeah. for six weeks. And uh, while we were there, Vesita, in his infinite wisdom, uh, got us a showcase gig down in Los Angeles. And we went down to Los Angeles for one night, and we did this showcase gig that allowed uh, people to see us because this gig was set up for promoters, agents, and um sort of people in the industry to check out these acts. Yeah. And we were sort of like this 
you know, import act from Canada, if you will, that that did this little showcase. And from there, believe it or not, Dan, we got another gig and that gig went from that to another gig. And we were on the road for two and a half years. I never got back to Vancouver until the Christmas of 1970. So then I was curious about, so you ended up in Scrubble O'Kane, but you were from Vancouver, but that band came out of Calgary, no? Did you? Well, did you... yeah, they 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 kind of cut their teeth in Calgary. What happened was I went out from Vancouver. There was three of us that traveled out there. Jimmy Harmada was a guitarist and a guy named Bob Kidd, uh, original bass player, and myself traveled from uh, Vancouver out to Calgary. And yeah. we hooked up with uh, Henry and uh, Paul Dean at the time. And... Um, for uh, the first uh, few months, I guess, we were struggling to find a drummer. And then we uh, finally uh, settled on Billy Macbeth. And uh, that was the roots of, well, first we're called Cannonball, but that was the roots of Scrubble O'Kane. Yeah. And uh, we headed out to, uh, to uh, Quebec City. And um, that was where we really cut our teeth as a band. We, had a, we worked there for... I think at least a couple of months, maybe longer, seven nights a week. It was unbelievable, but it was a fabulous club and a fabulous experience. And the band got quite a, it was a, quite a good band. We got pretty tight. And, uh, of course we got well, uh, noticed by, uh, Don Hunter, the management of the guests who was through Jimmy Kale that came into the band. And yeah, anyway, yeah, that was the early part. of. Well, that was a great band. It was, it was more than just a good band. It was a great band. I mean, you guys had a real, a magical sort of a combination there, I think in, in some measure. And then of course, cutting your teeth in the clubs. I mean, it, it cuts both ways, right? You, you're playing all the time, but you're getting tight, tight, tight. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what happened, Dan. And yeah, I, I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm bragging, but it was a great band. It really was part of one yeah. of the best bands that I've been with over the years for sure. Yeah. And uh, a lot of talent and uh, just some great, great uh, gig experiences and uh, camaraderie. And it was a real, uh, it was a powerhouse band. We had some pretty yeah. good times. Yeah. When you went to LA, were you assigned a producer or did you take one down with you? No, we were assigned a staff producer, a guy named Dave Kirschenbaum. Okay. And we didn't know much about him or his track record. And, you know, really weren't that, uh, uh, that knowledgeable about, uh, producers and who to get. We just, it was a staff producer with RCA and okay. and we went down there pretty prepared anyway. So yeah. he didn't have to do a whole lot. We just sort of tore into the stuff that we did and, uh, you know, not to sort of uh, discredit him and all. He was a fine producer, but uh, we were already stoked and ready to go with the material. So yeah, yeah. it's pretty cool. And Paul, Paul Dean was in the band too, and he's pretty right. intense. I mean, he's pretty involved in pretty much every aspect of everything, right? Was he, yeah. did they get along okay? Did, was there any? Oh yeah. No, yeah. That was the thing about the band. We were all uh, very much in tune with each other. Uh, Paul and, uh, and Jimmy Harmata, the, the twin guitarists were just, they were having a field day with each other because they came from different backgrounds and styles. And, uh, but they were uh, very compatible in, in the whole unit. Good. And uh, of course, uh, the fact that Henry could sing his ass off and play violin oh, and, uh, you know, when I'm playing uh, B3 and we had a great little rhythm section and of course, Kale was a, uh, you know, a decent bass player. And so it yeah. was a pretty strong little unit. Denise McCann is perhaps best known as a solo artist with the late seventies hit tattoo man. And then as the original lead singer of the Headpins. but she's done much more than that as well. And we'll get into that in our discussion. 
you had a, a real wide background, which was cool. And then, and then I read here that you moved to California, I guess, in your teens. Uh, yes, we moved from Iowa to California when I was eleven, actually. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and then I did all the rest of my growing up in the San Francisco Bay Area, which was kind of neat because I was there for the big, you know, hippie explosion of the late sixties. Yeah, um, the, the Haight-Ashbury time and the music yeah. and whatnot. So so yeah. you kind of got yourself, you would have been young at that time, but you got yourself involved in that? Yes. Well, I would sort of sneak away and, you know, tell my parents I was going to the mall and hop on a bus for San Francisco, yeah. <laughs> as yeah. one does. And, yeah. I, and I would go to the early concert halls where um, Chet Helms of the family dog was putting on these concerts. And one of the bands I saw when they were very first starting out was big brother and the holding company. Right. Cool. And, uh, you know, when Janis Joplin would sing, like everybody would go, Oh my God, I did not know you could do that with your voice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Powerhouse. eh? Oh yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Wow. Well, that's, that's a neat experience. So, so that was kind of your foray into the music business. You sort of thought I need to be around these crazy people or you just. Well, I always, I knew I wanted to be a performer. I always knew that. I always, I actually had thought I was going to be um, an actor. Um, Like being in movies was kind of what I had put myself towards. And then it became more and more obvious that um, not everybody had the kind of natural musical ability. I just thought, well, singing, that's something anybody can do. And then it was like, no, yeah. no, actually. So I was like, well, shoot, that's really easy. So I'll go that direction because it's easy for me. So you became a folk singer? Like you just started singing your own stuff, playing playing guitar? Yes. I, in San Francisco in the coffee houses, I just, me and my yeah. guitar and um, just writing my own songs mostly. But also I did Joan Baez and John, uh, sorry, um, Bob Dylan yeah. and, you know, the, the basic of the time folk music. And yes. then I just started writing all my own songs. Yeah. That's cool. Cause when you look at it, it was such an eclectic sort of blend. I mean, you had your acid rock and then you had the, the, the sort of psychedelic stuff and then you had the folk stuff and it was a real mix, right? Like everybody was just kind of whatever, if it's good, it's good. Yeah. And the folk scene was huge along, along with yeah. all the other stuff. Right. 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 Yeah. Well, well, I mean, you know, um, Donovan was really big at the time, and he basically yeah. was just doing folk music yeah. with a beat behind it, and you know. But yeah, yeah, it was it was kind of the way of to go for me. Yeah. And so I was curious, so how did you end up in Canada? Like, you, so you moved to up to up to Vancouver and up to the Vancouver. Early 70s? Uh, yeah, in the early seventies, I came nineteen seventy three, following a boyfriend as okay. as one one gotcha. does. There you go. <laughs> to a little town called Cedar outside of Nanaimo. Um, And I stayed there for about six months and kind of quickly went, you know what, I think I need to go to Vancouver because there's really no opportunity for me to sing or play here. Yeah. And uh, by then, the boyfriend thing wasn't working out anyway. So I went to Vancouver. Yeah. And um, I just, you know, I didn't know anybody. and And I started hanging out at a club called Rohan's Rock Pile and asking people, could I get up and sing with you? Or could I sing during your break? And they were like, yeah, sure, you know, whatever, (laughs) fine. And I would get up and um, play the dulcimer, which was what I had brought with me because it was smaller, and sing my songs. And people would tell me about recording studios. And I just walked into one one day. 
yeah. basically. It was called um, Timber Sound. I basically walked in and went up to the reception desk and said, hi, I'm a singer. And I wondered if you guys um, ever need a singer, <laughs> basically. <laughs> and someone came out and the receptionist called, I guess, the guy who was in the studio, the producer, and he came out and he said, well, yeah, actually, we're doing a recording right now that we could use some backup vocals on. No can way. you do backup? I said, oh, yeah, I can wow. sing harmonies and whatever you want. And they said, okay, come on in. <laughs> wow. Now, you have to realize that I had lived in San Francisco and I had been in bands there and I had tried to break into the recording. And I had done some recordings with bands and, you know, sung in studios with, you know, other famous bands in the other rooms. But it was more like, who do you know? Yeah, And, yeah. you know, you can't get in the door unless you know somebody. And then for me to just walk into a studio off the street and have them say, oh, sure, we have work for you. Come on in. was just, I went, I need to move here. So I basically came down to back down to San Francisco, packed up everything I owned and moved back up to Vancouver and never yeah. left. So you went into a studio and then you ended up recording your first single. I guess it was It, it Still Hurts, right? That was the yeah. country song that you did? <laughs> yes, it was a kind of a country song. Um, Guy and I did. And he sent it out to all the record companies, the Canadian companies. And they were all in the East, Montreal and Toronto. And it turned out that uh, one A&R guy in Montreal for Polydor Records, really loved it, was looking for new artists and said, we want to sign you. And it was like, wow, great. <laughs> he said, okay, we're going to release this. We need a B-side. And yeah. it was literally the only thing we had recorded to that point. Okay. So, um, you know, I said to Guy, well, we got to get in the studio. I have this song that I've been, you know, the song idea I've been working on about a, 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 a guy who is – like tattooed on a woman's heart and she can't, even though he's not good for her, she can't let go of him. And he was like, okay, well, let's work on that. And we yeah. went in the studio and recorded Tattoo Man and sent that to them for the B-side. And he, he got back right away and said, are you freaking kidding me? This is not a B-side. Oh. We're still committed to putting out It Still Hurts, but this is a hit and we're going to put this out on its own. You now need to do a B-side for that one, and we still need a B-side for the country song. Tattoo Man was was big. I mean, it was all over the place. We heard yeah. it lots. Well, and there's the story behind that, because I had done this album's worth of material. I was rather eclectic about my musical styles and tastes. I could sing anything. I liked everything, so I wrote everything. So that album was kind of... It had a country song. It had a folk song. It had, yeah. you know, rock songs. And we and we had done Tattoo Man, and it was a three-and-a-half-minute song because, of course, in those days you were like, oh, you want to keep it as close to three minutes as you can, want to, as you possibly can. Yeah. For radio airplay, they don't play long songs. Mm -hmm. um, so we got a call from that same A&R man in Montreal, and he said, you know, we love this song and we want to release it and we are going to release your album. We don't really know how to market it because <laughs> it doesn't really fit into any of the uh, genre pigeonholes that, you know, you're not a rock band, you're not a folk singer, you're not a whatever. And he said, there's this new thing happening here in Montreal, these clubs that are called discotheques, mm. and they want really long versions of songs. 
could you go back in the studio and lengthen that record, lengthen Tattoo Man to be about five or six minutes long and ideally put a percussion break in the middle where it's just drums and percussions because that enables the DJs to have a spot where they could mix in another song of the same beat or start your song over again and make it longer Hmm. because, you know, they didn't have computers in those days to do that. The guy just had to play the record, listen to where a spot was, where a beat started and cue up another record and listen to where the beat was on that one and try to match it by ear. So we were like, okay, (laughs) we went back in the studio and, you know, got a, percussionists and Cat Hendricks playing drums more. And um, we put in, I think it was 30 seconds, which is a long time in a, yeah. in a, in a song of just drums. Wow. Oh, and the other thing he said is, and they want it to be 12 inches. They want everything. They want 12 inch singles. We were oh. like, what? And they were like, well, that's what their turntables only take. They don't like having to have uh, a seven inch 45 or whatever the, size of a 45 is they want it to be a 12 inch one and there's more space between the grooves which again made it easier for them to queue up the next one and to find the exact spot so we said sure you know we're happy to have it played wherever you want to play it so whatever and that's how i ended up being called a disco artist keyboardist, songwriter, producer, and consummate music icon, John Capek. Whether you know his name or not, you've heard his music countless times in your life. He's basically done it all from writing, recording, producing, and much, much more. And you've been active since the 60s, I guess the mid-60s now, right? Well, well over half a century. And that's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> talk, that's great. Talk about retro, I guess. Yeah, yeah there you go. Yeah. It speaks well of you to, to have a, you know, play the long game, as they say, right? A lot of people sort of come in and out and they have a little bounce in the music business. But to, mm-hmm. to, to play the long game is a different, different sort of animal, right? Right. Well, I find it somewhat miraculous that I'm still in demand and I'm still working. And uh, I'm very grateful for that. So you describe yourself on your website as a real bohemian, which may I assume means that you're both from the region of Bohemia and you also chose a path of an unusual and artistic lifestyle. Is it, is it both? Is that why you say a real bohemian? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I have to um, say I, I admire the, the kind of romantic uh, lifestyle where uh, it, it, uh, a bohemian kind of uh, connotes a sense of freedom, which is um, a sense of artistic freedom. So did you have a sort of defining moment where you you thought, you know, I might be able to make something out of this? (laughs) The defining moment was the 60s and a tremendous amount of uh, um, chemical influence (laughs) (laughs) at the time that that, uh, also was deeply associated with the music of the time. Early on, in the early 60s, there was um, a resurgence of Dixieland traditional New Orleans-type jazz. So the mm-hmm. very first uh, bands I played with were Dixieland jazz bands uh, at the age of six, 16, where the leader of the band would come pick me up from my house because I couldn't drive, and off we'd go to play, to play gigs. And uh, so we were, we were very interested in... in uh, you know the, the the very early 
um, New Orleans, Dixieland jazz bands uh, of the era and trying to sort of emulate uh, that. And that led, yeah. led to me listening particularly to the piano players, to the Boogie Woogie guys. And, uh, and then that kind of had a direct line to uh, somebody, you know, Jerry Lee and, and, uh, and Little Richard. And then that led to uh, the Rolling Stones. And ultimately, all I ever really wanted to do in life was to join the Rolling Stones, but um, <laughs> Mick, Mick never called, so yeah. <laughs> off I went. So. <laughs> but isn't it neat how broad things become? You know, you, you have so this broad experience, you know, Dixieland and mm-hmm. a bit of jazz and some boogie-woogie and mm-hmm. then the rock stuff. Yeah. And, of course, the classical is always a backdrop to all of that. Yes. And the classical is really uh, ultimately how... I retain or have retained my, my chops because the mm. challenge of, uh, of that particular music, particularly of Bach, uh, where, where he'll do three-part inventions where you're actually playing three different themes at the same time. Mm. And the complexity, complexity and the beauty of that you know, is where, where my chops sort of, uh, I, I managed to keep them up for some time, except for the last couple of years where I've gotten so busy, the piano has become a piece of furniture in the corner of my room. <laughs> oh, are you uh, you still able to play? Are your fingers getting stiff? Or They're are you still getting fairly fluid. Seriously stiff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I sort of when people ask me to play, I kind of have to fake it a little bit these days. Yeah. I always hope that I can find the the time and the discipline to get back. Well, like someone said to me once, but I would say to you about piano, like your piano playing on your worst day is much better than my <laughs> piano playing on my best day. So. <laughs> One of the things about my piano playing and my composition and uh, um, the way that I approach music was I always wanted to play guitar and never had the time or the the motivation to really learn guitar, but I learned a way of creating guitar-like chords on the piano. And, uh, And usually my chords only have four elements to them and uh so kind of like like you would have four strings on a guitar or five strings and uh so that kind of defined my particular niche and my style by the 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 voicings and the chords that i create on the piano so my my uh, writing and uh, the way i play is unique it's unlike anybody else uh, has ever done Piano player always gets called on to kind of be the leader of a rhythm section. And mm. uh, I started to get a lot of calls in Sydney to uh, play on recording sessions for various artists. Um, I yeah. guess the most uh, well-known one of the time was uh, Rick Springfield. Um, yeah. you know, there's still a video up on YouTube of me playing with, with, with him at the, yeah. at the time. But I was playing on pretty much many many australian uh, stars of that of that era that would yeah. that would be um late 60s early 70s so um what happened was um an artist uh, by the name of carl erickson who was uh, you know we had the vietnam war at the time and uh, he didn't want to deal with it he was from wisconsin ended up in australia um mm. to try and not get drafted and he was yeah. a singer-songwriter, and he came to EMI Studios in, in uh, Sydney where he, he'd gotten a record deal looking for musicians, and he and I connected, 
and I ended up helping and playing and playing with him on the album. And uh, shortly after that, um, he uh, was disenchanted with Australia and he moved to Toronto okay. um, in 73, got a record deal with the United Artists in uh, Toronto and we stayed in touch and he called me and said, man, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with producers here who, are, who don't get what I do. Will you come to Toronto and help me with my album? So, okay. being, so being the bohemian that I am, I thought, sure, <laughs> sure, I, I'm up for an adventure. In that, in that series of sessions, I, I made some wonderful uh, connections with the kind of the then elite uh, of, of um, Canadian musicians and producers. Uh, and uh, that was uh, the main guy on those sessions was the acoustic guitar player, a fellow by the name of Paul Mills. Paul, mm -hmm. Paul Mills went on to uh, work for Radio Variety at CBC that pre were producing um, broadcast recordings, which were made to foster Canadian talent. And they weren't, they weren't for sale. They were sent out to the CBC radio network to help foster Canadian talent. So Paul, okay. Paul and I had a musical connection, and he started hiring me. Uh, to play on just about every up-and-coming uh, Canadian singer-songwriter who managed to um, record with the CBC. And, oh, nice. and uh, through that same connection, I met Ian Thomas, Ian yeah. Thomas of Painted Ladies fame. And yeah. if you listen to Painted Ladies, um, I got hired for that session and the clavinet that... that uh, is played on, on on that record that's me i mean that clav part is is world renowned i mean that was and that was an instant hit song yeah. and that was a real signature part of that song i love it i still <laughs> listen to it it's still on my playlist i listen to it all the time and that, that's one of the great and wonderful things that's kind of uh, been a gift to me that a lot of the stuff i've worked on uh like 40 50 years after the fact it's still getting played yeah, and uh, so I, I guess I must have done something right. I mean, my job, as I saw it, as a studio musician, was to come up with iconic hooks, to come up with parts that would stay. And yeah. I still feel that when I in my productions, if I come up, well, I, I don't really write the song; I write the record. So yeah. uh, I, I want a, a baseline that uh, when the same song that I've written gets played at a Holiday Inn 30 years from now, the bass player is going to play the bass line that I came up with. So what was your connection with Mark Jordan? How did you hook up with him? You guys obviously made a real bond, right? You guys. What happened was sort of interesting that um, I didn't understand Canadian music, and I still sort of don't. Canadian music to me and what I experienced, especially from the singer-songwriters, Apart from, from, well, even including Ian for his similarities at the time to Neil Young, uh, to Joni Mitchell, to a guy like Stan Rogers, it was completely antithetical. It had nothing to do with the kind of music that I was doing in Australia. Um, yeah. Everything that I'd done before then was um, black music influenced. And uh, Canada was kind of very white, I, I guess, yeah. and, and yeah. a lot of the influence of the East Coast uh, of, of maritime uh, music, and I, I sort of didn't understand it. So 
when I played on on these uh, on a lot of these records, I played out of some degree of ignorance of understanding the genre, but still gave it my all. So Mark, yeah. Mark was one of these, uh, very lyric based. He had some lovely melodies, but I, you know, I just it was just another session for me. And my wife at the time heard the stuff, and she said, "If you're going to invest any of your time, energy, and money into anything here in Canada, Mark Jordan is the guy." She heard, yeah. she heard it. I didn't. So I followed her advice. We went to a club called Edgerton's where he was playing in Toronto and I listened to him and tried to understand what he was doing and, and started to feel like there was something there. And uh, so we started working together. Thanks for checking out these short bits from my much longer conversations with previous Liner Notes guests. Don't forget you can listen to each full interview at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Until next time, I'm Dan Hare.